Well, James chapter 3. Let's uh, take a moment to go to the Lord and ask Him to teach us this morning. I'll give you a moment. Just pray silently in your own heart and ask God to speak to you. I'll do the same and then I'll close that time in prayer and we'll look to the Word. Our Father, we bow before You so grateful that we can trust You. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. But we pray for Your grace to trust Him more. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. Thank You, though, that You always are the same, that You never change, that there's no shadow of turning in You. We can count on You. And Your promises to us are sure. They will last. Thank You for Your promise never to leave us, never to forsake us. And thank You that Your Word teaches us about life, as Brother Tim was just saying. We need to know the purpose of the things that we do. Help us not to wander through life aimlessly, but instead to understand the purpose for which You have made us, namely to glorify You and to enjoy You forever. What a privilege to be made in Your image so that we can have this relationship with You through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need wisdom. And You promised that if any of us lacks wisdom, that we should ask You and You give it to us generously, without reproach. So Father, we are are here approaching Your throne this morning, asking You, for wisdom. Please give us a heart of wisdom. Help us. Let wisdom be first priority in our lives so that we can know how we ought to live, how we ought to navigate life's challenges, trials, conflicts. We need your help in this because we are weak, we are sinful, we are proud. Forgive us for our pride, Father. And thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from each and every sin. Help us now, Holy Spirit, please teach us from the truth of Your Word. Impress it upon our hearts, on our conscience. Let us be challenged, convicted, and changed through Your power, we pray. We need wisdom from above. So please teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Life Lessons with James, I believe this is number eight. We're making some good progress through the book. It's been a lot of fun for me. I love the book of James. It's immensely practical. Immensely practical. We can walk out this morning and apply it directly to our lives. No question about it. So it's a privilege. Let's review for just a moment. Remember where we have been. Recall that the key theme of the book of James is genuine faith. What James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, is teaching us is Faith impacts our lives. It helps us change. Genuine faith. So he's answering the question, what does a genuine faith look like? Here's our outline for the book that we've been working through. We've already worked through chapters 1 and 2. And Lord willing, today we'll conclude chapter 3. So chapter 1 is our faith tested. Chapter 2, faith enacted. Chapter 3, faith exposed. And then chapter 4 is faith opposed by worldliness. We'll see that next time that we're in the book of James together. And then chapter 5 is faith finished. Um, James exhorts us to endure and to pray in chapter 5. So chapter 1, faith tested. It's tested by our response to three things. Our response to trials. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Our faith is tested by our response to temptation. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. And then number three, our faith is tested by our response to the word of God. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And isn't that interesting? He says, deceiving yourselves. That's what it is. When we hear the truth of the word of God, but we refuse to do it or neglect to do it, we're not fooling anyone else. 
but ourselves. It's self-deception. Chapter 2 is our faith enacted, faith in action. It shows up in our day-to-day activities, and James gives two examples. First, an impartial faith. He deals with the topic of favoritism. He says that your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory, is incompatible with displays of partiality, favoring one over another based on outward appearance, based on your own judgment. And then second, he deals with an operative faith. Faith versus legalism. We don't work our way to heaven, but a genuine faith works. He says faith without works is dead. And so then we get to chapter 3, and our faith is exposed. The curtains are pulled back, and the true reality in your heart is exposed. Two ways. The power of the tongue. That's what we looked at last week. It has immense power to direct, to destroy, and to delight. But then, this morning what we're looking at is the pipeline of the tongue. The pipeline of the tongue. And let's turn to James chapter 3. Look at verse 13. We will read verses 13 through 18. James says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And so what we see this morning is that our faith is exposed by our wisdom. Our faith is exposed by our wisdom. And I realize if you grabbed one of the handouts, the sermon insert outline um, that's available in the back, I changed the outline on you, so I'm sorry. Um, Yours says, first, wisdom from below. That's James 3, verses 14 through 16. And then number two is wisdom from above. That's James chapter 3, verse 13. And then James picks it up in 17 and 18 again. Here's another way to outline the section. Um, wisdom's identity. James first identifies what true wisdom is, verse 13. He talks about wisdom's enemy, verses 14 through 16. And then he talks about wisdom's activity in verses 17 through 18. So feel free, pick whatever outline you prefer. They're They're both human. So either way, it's unsafe. But that's our big idea, is that our faith is exposed by our wisdom. And recall the audience of this whole section, James is addressing two groups of people. First of all, he started at the very beginning of chapter 3 by saying, um, be not many masters or many teachers. Not many of us should be teachers. So specifically, he addressed the teachers, the leaders of the church, saying not many of us should be. Why? Because we'll receive the stricter judgment And we all stumble in many ways with our tongues. So he's addressing teachers, but then he goes generally to the rest of the congregation and he says, but we all have this issue with our tongues. We often employ them for wicked purposes. And so he works through that in verses 2 through 12. And then it's interesting, verses 13 through 18, he, he circles back because... If you just read and thought through this section just a little bit, it has particular import for a teacher or a leader because a leader has a position of prominence. They're the one in front of people. And isn't that an easy place to be tempted toward pride, arrogance? Yeah. But at the same time, we all need wisdom. We all need wisdom. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 
Paul talks about that. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So wisdom is a universal need. As he said back in chapter one, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So that's just an important comment. It has particular import. If you want to teach the word of God, well, we need humility. But at the same time, we all need this wisdom from above. So there's your audience. So first off, let's talk about wisdom's identity. Wisdom, it's exposed by our, our faith is exposed by our wisdom. Here's wisdom's identity. Look again at verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show it out of a good conversation, his works with meekness of wisdom. So just try to picture a little bit what James is doing here. We're here at church today. Imagine that in, during our announcements time, Brother Gordy had one particular announcement, and he says, is anybody wise in here? Anybody understanding? If you think you're wise and have some understanding, we're going to have a little meeting up here after church. Just meet up here with, with Brother Gordy at the corner of the, of the platform, and we're going to have a meeting with all the wise people of the church. That'd be a little bit ironic, wouldn't it? People start gathering their briefcase. Well, I've got to have my diplomas and my degrees. Maybe I need all that, those 50 pages of research I did on such and such a topic. They get their notebooks and their pens and their spectacles, and they're looking all smart. I mean, imagine that. That's basically what James does here. It's kind of a humorous picture. He says, who's wise and endued with, with knowledge among you? Hmm. So the book of Deuteronomy talks about it. It can refer specifically to a teacher. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 13 and 15 talks about looking for people among the children of Israel who are going to be leaders, and the qualifications are that they be wise and understanding. So it's important for a leader. At the same time, then later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, it refers to all believers, saying that they should be wise and understanding, and that they're going to gain that by understanding God's law and living by it. Then the other nations around them will say, what a wise and understanding people. But he says wise. This word, it's the Greek word saphos. So it's a, a word that maybe you're familiar with talking about wisdom. Um, can you think of any words that have that in our English language? It makes me think of a sophomore, um, which is a wise fool. So that's a little bit ironic. Anybody in here a sophomore in high school right now? Very nice, very nice. So that's what, that's what the term of your grade means. That's the Greek word. It's a wise person. Um, and it's not viewed so much as one who has immense understanding, just enormous knowledge, but it's a skill in living. In application, there's knowledge required to be wise, but then it's an application of that knowledge to one's life. If you read through um, the wisdom literature, like Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, this word comes up dozens and dozens of times. And maybe the sum total of what those books teach us is that the wise are the ones who understand and then follow God's ways. They live their lives according to God's instruction. He says, who is wise and endued with knowledge among you? Endued with knowledge could be translated understanding. This is the only time it appears in the New Testament, this specific Greek word. Um, but we get it in, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So we see that word come up in Daniel chapter 1, verse 4. Remember the, the Jews, they've been carried off into captivity. And the Babylonians, they're, they're looking for some choice young men who they're going to train up in their ways. And this is one of the qualifications for which they're looking, is someone who is understanding. It comes up as well in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21. Maybe write that one down because it goes with our, our silly illustration at the beginning. It says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21. 
What this word, endued with knowledge or understanding, what it's getting at is um, someone who is knowledgeable, they're skilled in some area of learning, they're what we might call an expert. They have a level of expertise in a certain area. So who is wise and understanding among us? And James extends this invitation to the whole church family, to the whole congregation, to the whole community of faith. Who among us is wise and understanding? Do you think yourself to be wise? James says, prove it. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. And this reminds us back from chapter 2. Just turn your page back. James chapter 2, verse 18. Yea, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. So then James says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Same concept there. James says, if you have faith, prove it with your works. Now he says, if you have wisdom, prove it. Show me your wisdom. And he says, let him show it out of a good conversation. His works with meekness of wisdom. So James assesses these people's wisdom, not on their diplomas, not on their expertise in some area, but instead, in practical terms, the way they live their life. The lifestyle of the wise, it's a daily, moment-by-moment acts of obedience to God that add up to good conduct. He says, let him show it out of a good conversation. That's the idea of that word. A good conversation, it's a good conduct, a good way of life, the way that you live. And he says, well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says something very similar. It says, having your conversation, your conduct, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, our lifestyle ought to be a testimony to everyone around us. It ought to be evident. If you claim Christ, let your lifestyle show it. That's what James is saying. So he says, let him show it out of a good conversation, his works, that's his activities, the things we do, the things we say on a day-to-day. But then that last phrase, with meekness of wisdom, that is essential, with the meekness of wisdom. So meekness, one definition is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. In other words, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't be overly impressed with yourself. We're not quite as good as we think we are, oftentimes. He says, let it be shown in the meekness of wisdom. This word has the idea of gentleness, humility, a courtesy, a considerateness toward others. Meekness. Um, Sometimes people might think meekness sounds a lot like weakness. The words are different, though. Weakness is a lack of strength. Meekness is no lack of strength. Instead, it's strength under control. Imagine if we had a 55-gallon drum up here. It'd probably be pretty heavy, depending on what's in it. And there might be some of us who could come and bear hug it and pick it up. And that's quite the feat. If it's a, if it's a several hundred-pound oil drum, that's quite the feat to be able to pick that thing up. So they have no lack of strength, but meekness is the ability to pick that up and just say, my son, being crazy, he runs right under the oil drum. Well, if someone has just enough strength to pick it up and then they're going right back down, Jethro's going to get crushed. But meekness is the ability to pick that up. Jethro gets under it, uh uh-oh, and they they have it under control and they can pivot and keep Jethro safe. It's a silly illustration But you get the point. Meekness is strength under control. But he says with the meekness of wisdom. With the meekness of wisdom. What's this getting at? Think the humility of wisdom. True wisdom is humble. But how do we get this meekness? Because it's easy. The more we learn, it tends to puff us up. We start to think, hey, I'm making some progress. I'm doing really good. Good for me. And we kind of give ourselves some kudos. Good job. Pat on my back. How do we stay humble as we grow, as we improve? 
Proverbs has a lot to say about wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy, the Holy One, God Himself, the knowledge of the Holy is understanding. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility. In other words, how do we grow in knowledge? How do we improve without getting puffed up? It's the fear of the Lord. As we get to know God, how great He is, how impressive His character, how loving, gracious, patient, long-suffering, merciful His works toward us. We ought to be humbled God is so great. I am so far from what I ought to be. But God's grace spans that gap. That's the fear of the Lord. Is it a healthy fear? There's the, the aspect of trembling because we deserve judgment. But because of the blood of the Lord Jesus, we don't have to tremble when we approach God. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Romans 8 says. But instead, it's a reverential awe of God is mighty. He's to be feared and reverenced. And that breeds humility within us. He says, let him show his wisdom out of a good conversation, his good works, in the meekness of wisdom. Jesus was meek and humble. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus blessed the meek. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek. And you know, his disciples several times came to him, vying for positions of prominence, and he told them, well, whoever's first among you is going to be last, but the last will be first. Find greatness through servitude. And he gives the example at the Last Supper in John chapter 13 of washing one another's feet. He says, if you are wise, if you're going to come to this meeting after church and say, I'm wise, I'm understanding, great. Let's check your history. Let's check the record of your life. Are you living it out in the meekness of wisdom, the humility of wisdom? But that brings us to his contrast. Number two, wisdom's enemy in verses 14 through 16 wisdom's enemy look at verse 14 but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts glory not and lie not against the truth this wisdom descendeth not from above but is earthly sensual devilish for where envying and strife is there is confusion And every evil work. So James gives the contrast. He says, Wisdom from above, true wisdom, shows up in our life on the day to day with meekness of wisdom. True true wisdom is humble, meek. But the contrast, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Bitter envying, it's the Greek word zealous. It's kind of a fun word. That's where we get our English word zeal. And it has two ways it can be understood. There's a positive sense in the sense of zeal. In other words, a passion for God, his glory, for his holiness. We see that in the life of Phineas, who defends the glory of the Lord. We see it in Jesus himself. Remember when he goes and cleanses the temple, like in John chapter 2. Zeal for the house of God consumed him. But it also has the negative sense of envy. So zeal says God deserves the glory. And so I have a passion for his glory to be defended. Envy, it's still a passion, but it's not a passion for God and his glory. It's a passion for me, my glory, my kingdom, what I want, what I think I deserve. And what this envy leads to, we have this craving for what I want, 
this craving for my glory to be defended. Envy leads to jealousy. Jealousy starts with the envy, this craving for my glory, but then it leads to me defending it. I have intolerance of a rival. Maybe there's someone else I see who has what I wanted to have, and now I'm upset that they have it, and I treat them differently. Do you follow that? That's this word. He says bitter envying. Um, It has the idea of something pointed, sharp, prickly, something that cuts. But he gives an adjective to describe it. It's not just envy, but it's bitter envy. Have we seen this word bitter come up in the book of James before? Remember anything? Back in verse 11. Remember, James was describing our tongues, how we use them. And he gave several illustrations from the natural world. And one of them is salt water versus fresh water. Look at verse 11. He says, does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? And then at the end of verse 12, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. That word bitter is the same word. It's salt water. It's bitter water that you don't want to drink. Or if you do, it's not refreshing like water is supposed to be because it's not fresh. And so that's the same adjective. James takes that and now he applies it to our envy. It's bitter envy. Um, It's biting. It's sharp. It's prickly to our relationships. Just like salt water. Maybe you have a canker sore and you get the salt water and and you gargle with it to help promote healing and cleansing. Well, that's good, but sometimes it hurts a little bit. Rubbing salt in a wound isn't very fun. And sometimes that's what our envy is like. It's bitter envy that rubs salt in others' wounds. He says, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts. So what is this strife? This is the idea of selfish ambition or conflict, selfishness. It's seeking only your own gain and prestige. It's promotion of myself. Uh, the word is rarely used in, um, in Scripture as well as in other Greek literature. But maybe you've heard the name Aristotle before, a rather prominent Greek philosopher from the 4th century BC. He used this word to designate the attitude of those who seek political office for private gain rather than the public good. That's a powerful illustration of what this word is, isn't it? We see that a lot with with politicians. There's some corrupt purpose. They say, I'm here for the public good. I just want to serve the community. But sometimes, deep down, or sometimes not so far deep down, they're actually doing it for their own personal benefit. And, And let's be honest, were we in the same shoes, it's difficult to maintain pure motives. But that's this word, strife or selfish ambition. It's I'm doing this and maybe I put on a facade that it's for the public good, but it's actually for my own personal gain. He says, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie against the truth. This idea of selfish ambition comes up a couple times in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 17 Paul, he's talking about, he says, hey, I'm in bonds, I'm in prison, but there's people out there, they're free, and they're preaching the gospel for selfish ambition. They're doing it in order to spite Paul. And do you remember what Paul's answer to that is? Instead of being irritated that they're doing it to to frustrate him, he actually says, all I'm going to do is praise the Lord that the gospel is being preached. That's a rather poignant passage. But then in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, uh, Paul uses the same term of selfish ambition. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. He says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Then he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he describes how God the Son humbled himself and took on flesh. He became like we are, and he dwelt among us. And then he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. 
And then Paul says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him, given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the cure for our selfish ambition. Look at Christ. He had every right to promote himself. He deserves the glory. And yet he humbled himself and took on flesh. But I find it interesting. Just look again at your, at your copy of Scripture. Where does it say bitter envy and strife reside? If you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, sometimes it comes out and we can see when somebody has it. But ultimately, this is something between you and God. Others may see you as a peacemaker, as a humble person, but deep down, we, we know when we have this bitter envy or a jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. But he says, if you have this bitter envy, strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Glory not and lie not against the truth. Glory not, it's a, it's a word, it's a compound word in Greek, and it carries the idea of to boast against. It's to boast against something. So he says, don't boast against the truth. Um, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, that's a great passage about boasting. Because we typically think of boasting, or at least I do, in a negative sense of boasting is self-promotion. It's proud, it's puffed up, it's arrogant. But Jeremiah gives us a picture of when we ought to boast. Jeremiah 9 verses 23 through 24 says, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory or boast in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, God says. He understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So our boast is not in our wisdom. Our boast is not in our might, who's the strongest, who's the most powerful. Our boast is not in our riches or our lack thereof. Our boast ought to be in the Lord. We say, praise the Lord that I have the privilege to know God who exercises judgment, righteousness, and loving kindness. So true boasting, the boasting we ought to engage in, is actually humble boasting. It's not boasting in me, it's boasting in God, his greatness and his goodness. Isn't that profound? I love that. So James says, if you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Lie not against the truth. Here's the idea. Arrogant boasting and self-promotion saying, I'm a wise person. I have understanding, but actually in your heart, there's just bitter envy and strife, self-promotion, conflict. What you're doing, you're boasting, but you're lying against the truth. Well, against what truth? The truth that true wisdom is humble. Remember, let him show out of a good conversation his works in the meekness of wisdom. The true nature of wisdom Um, one commentator said, it does not represent the insight and truth that God supplies, if you're boasting about yourself. It does not represent the insight and truth that God supplies. He does not clothe his wisdom in such attire. God's wisdom is not clothed in the attire of bitter envy and selfish ambition. So then James says, this wisdom descendeth not from above but is earthly, sensual, devilish. So James identifies, he says, we want wisdom from God. And how do we know if it's wisdom from God? Well, someone who is truly wise by God's standard has listened to God, has observed Christ and his meekness, and therefore this individual's life is characterized by humility, 
by meekness. James says this wisdom that has bitter envy and strife does not descend from above. Um, Remember back to chapter 1, verse 17? Look back there. It descends from above. James said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So there is this realm which is above. It's the realm where God resides. And from this realm comes every good gift, every perfect gift, and wisdom. Remember James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. He says, this wisdom, though, does not descend from above. Uh, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 talks about the true source of wisdom. Proverbs 2, verse 6. For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Only the Lord can give true wisdom. Now, we may have skills. We may exhibit human wisdom of just a discernment in various situations, but true wisdom only comes from God. But then, James wants to highlight that this alleged wisdom where people say, yes, I'm wise, I'm understanding, but in their hearts they have bitter envy and strife. He wants to identify where does that jealousy, that partisanship, that spirit, that faction, where does that come from? He gives a threefold description. He says this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. So let's talk about those three for a minute. So the word earthly, it's again a compound word in Greek. And what it's getting at is earthbound. It's bound to merely the the sphere of earth. It's earthly. The term can be neutral. John chapter 3 verse 12 is an example of that where Jesus says, hey, I've taught you some things that are earthly, but if you don't understand those, how are you going to understand the things that are spiritual? But notice there's a contrast. So James says this wisdom is actually earthly. It's merely human wisdom. Ultimately, human wisdom cannot accomplish God's purposes. He says it's earthly, sensual, and devilish. So the word sensual is an adjective from the term in Greek that, that has the idea of your soul or your heart, your innermost being. So then it's contrasted several times with that which is spiritual. Let's see, I think I have a slide on this. Sorry, I have a hard time with the slides, keeping track of where the slides are and where we're at in the notes. So I'll try to keep it current up there. It's earthly and sensual. That it has the idea naturally or fleshly, it's our own thoughts, it's not God's. The word comes up only five times in the New Testament, and it's always in the negative sense. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 15, twice in 1 Corinthians 15, and then in Jude 19. But both Paul and Jude use it to contrast to the spiritual and to the things of the Holy Spirit. So there's a difference between the wisdom that is from our own human soul, our own heart, and the wisdom of God. So he says this wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Devilish. It's just, it's an adjective from the Greek word from which we get our English, demon. It's demonic. Ultimately, yes, wisdom that has bitter envy and strife, it's earthly. It's from our own human wisdom. But ultimately, the source of that supposed quote-unquote wisdom is actually demonic. Behind our foolish human wisdom is Satan's work to promote deception and selfishness. Remember back earlier in chapter 3, verse Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. That's where in our outline we get the idea of the power of the tongue but then the pipeline of the tongue. The tongue is only saying what the heart 
is listening to. And the pipeline of the polluted tongue, the pipeline, the pipeline of the proud, arrogant human wisdom is from hell. It's demonic. It's instigated by Satan. And that's dangerous. Um, here's a quote from a commentator named Douglas Moo. He says, In sum, then, this false wisdom, which does not lead to good works and humility, is characterized by the world, it's earthly, by the flesh, it's sensual, and the devil. Those are the three enemies of the Christian. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Then he continues, he says, In each of these ways, it is the direct antithesis, the opposite of the wisdom that comes down from above, which is heavenly in nature, spiritual in essence, and divine in origin. That's profound. We look at this human wisdom and it's earthly. It's sensual. It's demonic. But that's different than God's wisdom that comes down from heaven. It's taught by His Spirit. And ultimately, it's sourced in God. Look at verse 16. James gives the reason. James gives the reason in verse 16. For where envying and strife is or are, where these are, there is confusion and every evil work. For, James uses this conjunction to to transition, to give us this reason for why he's harshly condemning human wisdom. Because maybe you show up to the meeting after church, hey, I'm wise, I'm understanding, I've got my briefcase full of all sorts of fun papers and diplomas and degrees and credentials. I'm here. And then you don't pass the test. Uh Uh-oh, I have bitter envy. I have some selfish ambition. Maybe I'm not as wise as I thought. James says he gives us the reason for why he condemns that wisdom as earthly, sensual, demonic. Because no one wants to be told their wisdom's demonic. I mean, come on. He says, why? For where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. That same commentator, Douglas Moo, he says, the earthbound, unspiritual, and even demonic character of this wisdom is evident from the effects it has in the life of the church. We're not just talking about out there. We're talking about in here. This isn't just for the world. Of course the world is worldly. We are the church. We ought to be set apart and different. We ought to have the wisdom from above. We ought not have selfish ambition. We ought not have envy and strife and conflict and anger and frustration and grumpiness. But we do. We do. And if you, do, if you haven't seen it this week, just wait until you wake up tomorrow morning and someone talks to you before you get your coffee. How dare they? Or someone cuts you off on the way over the summit to work. What are they thinking? Let's be real. We've all got it. We all struggle with this in various degrees and various forms. But the reality is this wisdom does not descend from above. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Confusion. It's an interesting word. Um, It refers to opposition to established authority, disorder, or unruliness. It's I'm not going to follow the rules and what proceeds is chaos. That's confusion. Um, James has actually already twice used a different form of this word in his description of the instability of a double-minded man. Look back at James 1.8. It's the same word, just a different form. Remember, he's talking about as you meet trials of various kinds, count it joy, ask for wisdom. He says, don't doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the winds. Unstable. Verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It says he's unstable. That's the word we're after. He's unstable. And remember, double-minded, what James is trying to help us understand is God wants our whole heart, our whole mind, our entire being. He wants us to love him with all that we are and serve him genuinely, not hypocritically, where we say, I'll serve God today, but then the rest of the week is mine. 
Not I'll do my devotions in the morning and then I blow up on my way over the summit. That's what a double-minded person is like. They're unstable in all of their ways. It's up and down. And we all have that. To an extent, we're all double-minded, if we're honest. But a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And then it comes up again, James chapter 3, verse 8. He says, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, an unstable, a restless, an uncontrollable evil, full of deadly poison. Well, that's kind of interesting. He kind of, James kind of likes this word. It's one of the key concepts of the book of James. Genuine faith, not double-minded faith. Genuine faith, single-minded devotion to God. He says, where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Um, it's the same word, interestingly enough, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. Paul uses it addressing the uncontrolled use of spiritual gifts in a church setting. And he says, why should we use our gifts? He's talking a, a lot there about speaking in tongues. Why should we use our spiritual gifts in an orderly fashion, why are there instructions for how we use the spiritual gifts? 1 Corinthians 14.33. For God is not a God of confusion. That's the word. He's not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is an orderly God. He wants things the way that they ought to be. It's like when my sock drawer is a mess. Well, in that way, I'm not bearing God's image the way I probably should. Because sometimes my sock drawer discloses the situation of my heart. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe not. If your sock drawer is a mess, I'm not condemning you. There's nowhere in the Bible that says your sock drawer must be orderly. And mine is not as well as it should be. God's not the God of confusion. But where there's envy and strife, there is confusion. God's not the God of confusion. But it says there is confusion and every evil work. Every evil work. How many evil works? All of them. All sorts of them. All sorts of evil proceeds when we have bitter envy and selfish ambition in our hearts unchecked. It's dangerous. It brings about all sorts of wickedness. Every evil work. Um, this, this word evil, it carries the idea of low grade or morally substandard, if you will, the base or the vile practices. It's the idea of it's inferior. God has set the standard here and our vile evil practices fall far short. They're inferior to what God has called us to do. That's the idea. He says where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Our bitter, jealous hearts that strive with selfish ambition, our spirits of one-upmanship, if you will, only bring about utter chaos, heartbreaking conflict, and all sorts of sinfully sad practices. Do you see the danger in wisdom's enemy? Envy and strife only produces confusion and wickedness. But then James transitions once more to wisdom's activity. Oh, sorry, that, like I said, I have a hard time keeping up with my slides. There's the quote we were talking about. On to number three, wisdom's activity. Look at verse, look at verse 17 with me, if you will. James contrasts once more. He says, but the wisdom that is from above is sourced in God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The wisdom that's from above. He already identified it back in verse 13. The big idea is that true faith, true wisdom, is identified by the quality of life that it produces. The big idea that true wisdom is a peacemaking wisdom. He says it's first pure. Um, first, it's the preeminent attribute James wants to use to describe wisdom. It's pure. It's unmixed. It's innocent, morally blameless. 
untainted by defilement of sin. Proverbs 15.26 says, The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. Maybe jot down 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. That's the text that describes when we see Christ, we will be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And then John says, Every man who has this hope purifies himself because Jesus is pure. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. And James gives us three, well, the rest of the list really describes that first um, description of pure, unmixed, untainted. He says it's peaceable. Uh, This word has the idea of humility that brings peace. It's free of conflict. Proverbs 3 verse 17 says, Her ways are ways of pleasantness, describing wisdom personified. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. All of wisdom's paths are peace. We'll come back to that concept of peace in a minute. He says it's first pure, then peaceable, gentle. This is the idea of humble. It's willing to yield. It's considerate. In other words, God has set standards in his word. We know there are things that we do and do not do. We do not steal. We do what God has said. Those things we don't compromise on. If someone asks you to disobey God, refuse. But there are things that God has not said. For instance, your sock drawer. (laughs) Or whether you put water in your pots after you use them or not in this kitchen sink. Things like that. We ought to be willing to yield to one another. Maybe you do it differently. That's okay. I can defer to you. I can yield to the way you want to do it. That's okay. And there's a whole lot more of these things than first meets the eyes. It's not just our sock drawers and our pans. It's the way we do things in the church. It's the order of service. You name it, there's a lot. Are you gentle and willing to yield? And 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 describes Christ in this way. Christ was known for his meekness and his gentleness. Um, fourth, easy to be entreated. It has the idea of teachable, reasonable, approachable, compliant. What is meant, a commentator says, what is meant is not a weak, credulous gullibility, but a willing deference to others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved. If someone says, deny the deity of Christ, don't do it. But if it's something that the scripture is not explicit on, it's okay to yield. We ought to, because that's what wisdom from above is like. Full of mercy and good fruits. I love that description, full of it. And who gets to say when you're full of mercy, when you're full of good fruits? I mean, how can you ever be full? But mercy, it's the idea of compassion. James described it back earlier in chapter two. Remember, the poor person walks through the doors. We see them. Is your heart moved with compassion? Do you invite them to come sit by you? Do you treat them impartially, just like you would have treated the rich person who walks through the door next with the, with the shining clothes and the gold ring? That's mercy. But mercy and good fruits. It's not just my heart is moved with compassion on their behalf, but it affects my life. It affects my life. Its effects are sure. There's good fruit. There's actions out of that mercy. And James comes back to this idea of fruit in verse 18. It reminds us of the fruit of the Spirit, a similar list in Galatians chapter 5. Maybe go and look at that later. Um, Jesus emphasized mercy in the Beatitudes once again, the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you remember the introduction we gave to the book of James months and months ago. One of the things we see in James is he must have been heavily influenced by the Proverbs and by the teaching of his half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus said something about mercy, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's without, without partiality. Um, it's a word that has the alpha negative on the front. It's like when we say controlled, but then we can say uncontrolled, and it means the opposite. That's what this world is. This word is. Um, 
it can have two meanings, both show up in the book of James. It can indicate what we already discussed of someone who's double-minded, doubting, and wavering. But it also has the idea of not being partial or judgmental or critical. But then James says, wisdom from above is without hypocrisy. In other words, it's not fake. It's unfeigned. I'm not pretending. I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not playing a part. And these texts describe love unfeigned, Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 Peter 1, and faith unfeigned, 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy 1. Wisdom from above is without hypocrisy. It's not pretending. And then we get to verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Here's the key concept. The meekness of wisdom, wisdom is humble, brings peace to the community. The fruit of righteousness, it describes the harvest of righteousness. Remember, every evil practice, that's where envy and strife lead. If one sows the seeds of envy and strife, it leads to every evil practice. However, a peacemaker, one who is wise, that's the end of verse 18, sows seeds of peace. Well, what kind of a harvest do they reap? A harvest of righteousness, all sorts of righteousness, and of peace, of unity. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So let me ask you a question. With the harvest metaphor, what is the harvest of your life? Right now, look back at your week. How's your harvest? What kind of fruit is coming out of your life? Have you been grumpy, irritable, difficult to approach? People are walking on eggshells trying to be around you. They don't want to hurt your feelings or upset you. Have you spoken words that were harsh? Words of anger, words of selfishness? Have you spoken words that were grumbling and complaining or argumentative? Philippians 2 verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling and arguing. Proverbs 17 14 says, The beginning of strife is as when one lets out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with. In other words, Anger and conflict is like floodgates with lots of water behind it. As soon as you open it a little bit, a lot comes out. So it's a whole lot easier to cut it off at the pass, to stop conflict before it starts. That's what the wise person does. They say, I feel some frustration welling up within me. Would you please forgive me? I need to take a moment and ask God for help to be a peacemaker in this moment. But coming back to that concept of peace, true wisdom is peacemaking. But how can we have peace to make with one another if we never have peace with God? Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore being justified freely, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. True peace horizontally only results from peace vertically. If you have not been saved from your sins, if you are still the enemy of God, a child of his wrath, you cannot have true and lasting peace in your relationships with one another. Only when our sins are forgiven and we're welcomed into the family of God, now we have peace with God. So there can be peace with one another. And remember that that peace is costly. It costs the blood of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. He gave his life to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. And he rose from the dead and he offers freely to every one of us forgiveness of sins and eternal life because Jesus paid it all. But until we have peace with God, there's no peace with one another. And if there's no peace with one another, it reflects an issue in your relationship with God. So I'd encourage you, Take verse 17 and maybe take the description of um, wisdom from below back in verse 14 and verse 16. Wisdom from below is bitter envy and strife. Wisdom from above, pure, peaceable, gentle, easily entreated, full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. 
Go back sometime later today, later this week, and examine your own life. Look at your harvest. And rate yourself, maybe. Sometimes that exercise is helpful. On a scale from one being never, I'm never peaceable, to ten being I'm always peaceable. Rate yourself and ask God to teach you, to help show areas where we need to grow. Because we all have them. Because wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. And thinking of wisdom, it makes me think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, I'd encourage you to go read it later. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25, describes how the cross and Christ crucified, it's foolishness to the world. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. But it's actually the wisdom and the power of God. God's wisdom on full display is in Christ crucified. He made peace with God for us. That's the wisdom of God. So what I want to do is just sing a closing song, the gospel song. Um, Maybe you know the gospel song. We've sang it before. I want to sing the gospel song and meditate on the cross work of Christ that purchased our peace with God and that gives us this wisdom such that we can be humble and peacemakers. All right?